Chris just finished <clears throat> our previous sub-series on some of the foundational doctrines <clears throat> of the Christian faith a few weeks ago. And today, we are beginning our new sub-series, which is going to be on the 23rd Psalm. It's only six verses, but it's packed full of substance and encouragement for Christians. I'm sure all of you are familiar with this psalm. Psalm 23 is certainly one of the most famous chapters in all the Bible. And that goes for religious and non-religious groups alike. These six verses are probably the most decorated verses you'll ever find. You see them on coffee mugs, picture frames, posters, or hear celebrities reference them in movies. The Navy SEAL Marcus Luttrell in his book, Lone Survivor, talks about how he was quoting this chapter when he was behind enemy lines after the rest of his team was dead. Even Coolio, a famous rapper in the 90s, references a verse in his greatest hit, Gangsta's Paradise. And while so many understand the basic meaning of God <clears throat> as shepherd, there are far too many sheep out there to show any evidence that we have allowed our lives to be restored in any meaningful way by the shepherd. So we have six verses in Psalm 23 that describe the shepherd as he cares, protects, and guides his sheep. And unlike most other psalms, it's not a lament of trouble, a petition, prayer, or a call for refuge. The 23rd Psalm is a thankful observance of provision, peace, protection, prosperity, and presence. And this sermon series intends to provide for us a path the sheep, for the sheep to find our way back into the restorative arms of the Good Shepherd. And as Tim Keller puts it, consider whether or not we've really incorporated the shepherdness of Jesus into our understanding of God. And our hope is that we'll approach these familiar words and find deep rest and renewal and restoration that only the true shepherd can provide. But before we begin, it's important to note that this chapter can be a confusing psalm due to its structure. <clears throat> we also know this is an abused psalm by reading it as if we have been freed from a life of difficulty or opposition. And in order to avoid these misinterpretations, we first need to understand that Psalm 23 does not exist in isolation. It comes after Psalm 22. Spurgeon says it best, the position of this psalm is worthy of notice. It follows the 22nd, which is peculiarly the psalm of the cross. There are no green pastures, no still waters on the other side of the 22nd psalm. It is only after we have read, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, that we come to the Lord as my shepherd. We must by experience know the value of blood shedding and see the sword awakened against the shepherd before we will be able to truly know the sweetness of the good shepherd's care. So Psalm 23 comes after Psalm 22 for a purpose, for a reason, and it cannot be understood rightly apart from that context. That we first see the psalm of the cross. We first see the psalm that is fulfilled as Christ being crucified. We see this psalm 1,000 years before his birth, that he would die on a cross that he would be surrounded by Gentiles, that he would hang between two thieves, that they will cast lots for his clothes, 
that he will be thirsty and have his tongue quenched to the roof of his mouth, and that he would be stabbed in his side. All of these things are foretold in Psalm 22, and it's only because of the gruesome psalm that comes before it that Psalm 23 is the blessing that it is. We'll also see there's a shepherd theme in Psalm 23. And this shepherd's theme is seen throughout the entire Bible. Beginning with the patriarchs, to Moses, to David, and Jesus, the apostles, and even pastors. So the idea of shepherding is found throughout the entire Bible. And this iconic psalm, found in the middle of the Bible, is the most well-known presentation of the idea of shepherd. But another key to help our understanding of this psalm is to focus not on the sheep, as most people do, but on the shepherd. We should focus on the wisdom, goodness, and strength of the shepherd. And it's clear that King David, meditating on the goodness of God, had brought him great comfort as he wrote this psalm. And without a doubt, this psalm is so popular and appealing to us because of the comfort and the peace that it provides us and how it points us to Jesus who reveals himself as the good shepherd. Let's go ahead and read Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. My focus today is going to be on the first verse. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I want us to see the shepherd's providence, protection, and the shepherd's provision. You see how it begins, the Lord is my shepherd. Right off the bat, we have the provision, protection, and the providence, God's providential care for his sheep. But note that the Lord's providential care is limited. The Lord is my shepherd. David is not making a universal statement about God's relationship with all people. And this could be disappointing for some because, as I already mentioned, this psalm is known by believers and unbelievers alike. Unbelievers like the idea of God as shepherd. And they take Psalm 23 to mean that this is God's disposition towards all people. But David is not making a statement about God's disposition towards all people. In fact, David is not even making a statement about God's disposition towards all Israel. King David is making a statement about God's disposition towards him. The Lord is my shepherd. Not everyone can say that. Not everyone in Israel can say that. Not everyone in this room can say that. Only those who understand Psalm 22 and the redemption that we have in Christ because of his blood shed on our behalf when he bought and purchased a people as the sheep for his fold. 
Only those can make the statement that the Lord is my shepherd. Only when you get Psalm 22, only when you understand that redemption, can you truly make this statement. The shepherding the psalmist describes is not universal. It's based on God's unique disposition towards his people. We are born enemies of God, deserving of his wrath. So it cannot be talking about us in that state. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of, li- of wrath like the rest of mankind. All of mankind stands under the wrath and condemnation of God. All of mankind is being shepherded by the evil one, the prince of the power of the air. You cannot be shepherded by the evil one and the Lord at the same time. And Jesus makes it clear that we become the children of God or the sheep of his pasture. In John chapter 1, verse 11 through 13, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We do not need the right to become something we already are. We are not all God's children. We are all his creatures. We are all his creation. But those who believe are granted the right to become the children of God. We enter into this sheepfold, and it's only then that we can say, the Lord is my shepherd. Because Christianity is not achieved, Christianity is received. In John 10, Jesus said, I told you, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. You don't have to take my word for it, take Jesus' word for it. He says there are those who don't believe him because they are not his sheep. But notice also that he doesn't say, you are not my sheep because you don't believe. He says they don't believe because they are not his sheep. It is being marked as his that leads us to believe. So you should not feel free to claim the blessings of Psalm 23 haphazardly. We must understand that first. And that is what Spurgeon meant. You have to put Psalm 23 in its context. It is only those who understand Psalm 22. Only those who have been redeemed by the death in Psalm 22 that can make the claim in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. It's only when you have come to him in repentance and faith that you can claim him as your shepherd. You cannot say, I do not believe him and claim to be one of his sheep. So do you believe or not? Do you believe that Christ is who he says he is? Do you believe that he is the Son of God? Do you believe that he died for the sins of sinful men to satisfy the wrath of God? Do you believe that that we need this death on our behalf because we are sinners and enemies of God and the only way to access rightness with God is through his death that we deserve? Do you believe that he is our only hope of salvation? 
It is only when you can answer yes to these questions that you can lay hold to Psalm 23. Otherwise, you're deceiving yourself. We also see his protection here. The Lord is my shepherd. And the metaphor of God as shepherd is highly personable. The shepherd is with his flock 24-7. The shepherd leads his flock to food and to water. The shepherd protects the defenseless sheep. The shepherd attends to the sheep's wounds and injuries. And the sheep completely depend on the shepherd's leadership and follows him wherever, they, wherever he leads them. And this is why David affirms that he shall not want. Just like the Israelites during the Exodus, God led them through the wilderness like a flock and he supplied them all that they needed. And it's no coincidence that we are referred to as sheep in the Bible. But why? Why not be referred to as dogs or birds or something else? Why sheep? Sheep are defenseless. Sheep are ignorant. Sheep are needy. Sheep are frightened. Sheep are wayward, wandering. He refers to us as sheep because sheep need a shepherd. You don't find sheep out in the wild fending for themselves. They won't make it very long. A sheep can't even make it if someone doesn't cut the wool off of them. It could fall over and not be able to get back up. That's how worthless sheep are. They could die from, all, from falling over and not being able to get back up. They can't run fast. They don't have sharp teeth to fend off predators. They have no claws and they're not very smart. And unless you have the humility to think of yourself like that, then you don't understand the nature of sin. Because you know what sin does? Sin takes a sheep and makes it think that he's a wolf. Sin takes a sheep that can't survive and makes it think that it's a predator and doesn't need a shepherd. Thinking that it doesn't need God and can make it on its own. Well, we are in desperate need of shepherding. God is a shepherd, but only to those who are touched with the sense of their own weakness and poverty and feel their need for his protection and abide in his sheepfold by surrendering themselves to him. David, who excelled both in powers and riches, confessed himself to be a poor sheep so that he might have God for his shepherd. So who are we not to take advantage of having God as our shepherd? And we should bear in mind that our happiness comes and that he has reached down to us and that he has given us the opportunity to know him and that we can live under his providence and protection over us. Moving on to the last statement, I shall not want. This can, this can also be interpreted as lack nothing. Why? Because the, good, because the good shepherd will supply his sheep with all that they need. I will lack nothing because the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord will, will provide me everything that I need. But what happens when we come to a place in our life where we don't have something that I need? You didn't need it. You might have wanted it, and in your mind... Things might have worked out a lot more conveniently for you if you had it. But if God didn't give it to you, 
then you didn't need it. And think about the alternative. The alternative is, my theology says, there was something that I needed that God was either not capable of or unwilling to supply. And that's not God. The other question is, why did you need it for? You needed it for what you thought was best in that circumstance. But life for the Christian is not about accomplish, accomplishing what you think is best for that circumstance. It's about trusting the shepherd to accomplish that which he knows is best in any given circumstance. And this does not mean what the prosperity gospel says it means. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Talk about a misused passage. This is an FCA favorite right here. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can win this battle. I can win this race. I can win this game because Christ strengthens me. No, what Paul is saying, I have learned to be content in all circumstances. That's what this means. Because what we need and all we need is Christ. And failure to grasp this will lead to frustration and confusion. Part of the reason we miss this is because we are misguided about the journey. We're going along in our life with the Lord as our shepherd. I shall not want. We're going through our days with plenty and not in want. So anytime we feel a pain or physical discomfort, we might look to God as if somehow he has forgotten us or forsaken us. Because our perspective is here and now. Going from that green pasture to that green pasture without considering the valleys that are between them. So we need to realize that coming to Christ doesn't mean that we always live in comfort and never face hurt, want, or even death. And if you want to think that becoming a Christian means that life is going to be sunshine and rainbows, just consider Jesus, the life of Jesus and the apostles. Jesus took the place of his sheep and was led to the slaughter. For us, he was smitten. He gave everything of himself to provide everything for us. And as we'll see throughout this study of Psalm 23, Jesus hung on a cross and shed his blood on the dirt of Golgotha so that we could lie down in green pastures in verse 2. He laid his soul in the grave so our soul can be restored in verse 3. He allowed the valley of the shadow of death to swallow him so that we might become, so it might become for us the highway to heaven in verse 4. And every morning he sets a table for us, filled with rich food in verse 5. And every day he sends his goodness and mercy to chase us, surround us, and keep us safe until we reach our final home in verse 6. And as we entrust ourselves to this shepherd, he takes his rod and his staff and entrains us to follow him. He teaches us day by day, that as long as we are near him, 
we will not want, we will lack nothing. Even in discomfort, even in rejection, even in the valley of the shadow of death. So the implication is, since he was not spared but delivered up for us all, we can be sure that he will give us everything that we need. And this is what a Christian means by saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And as humans, we're all in pursuit of happiness. And that typically includes our natural inclination to want more. So we're surrounded by wanters, Christians and non-Christians alike. People always want more, no matter how much we have. Most cultures in the world are like this today. Materialism breeds greed and discontent. Companies constantly market the need to upgrade perfectly usable products to the latest and greatest must-haves. Some people go through their whole life being discontent. They wish away their present while dreaming of the greener grass on the other side of wherever they are now. If only I could get a promotion, then I'd be happy. Once I get my degree and get a job and reach independence, then I will enjoy my life. If I could just travel more, I'd be happier. But there are only two options when you set your hope on things rather than God. Either you will not get what you hope for and be discontent, or you do get what you hope for and it doesn't satisfy. So you're discontent either way. If all of your deepest desires for worldly success and love are fulfilled, it won't be enough. So let's take this topic of lacking nothing, of lacking nothing just a step further beyond just the material things. Because you're going to be dissatisfied. And therefore it seems that we are searching for something deeper than all the things we would ordinarily think should be enough. No one lives perfectly content. Most people, if they really learned how to look into their own hearts, would know that they want something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings that arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of traveling to another country, or a new subject that excites us, or a new job, these longings, no marriage, no travel, no learning can ever satisfy. There's something deeper than success, than family. There's something deeper that explains all of our lack and discontent. And the only, only true solution to this is Jesus. When Jesus is your shepherd and your faith, hope, and trust is in him, you won't be discontent. At the most fundamental level, you can't be. If you truly understand the implications of the gospel and what that means for us as Christians. But don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say that there aren't times in life when we are discontent. Because as I already mentioned, we're, we're, we're already, we're already, it's our natural inclination to be discontent. If we were always content, every, you know, everything in our lives, if we were content all the time, then there really wouldn't be much progress, right? What I'm trying to say is that the overall big picture, the big scheme of things, Christians should be content. 
Because no matter what happens, no matter what life throws at us, in the highs and the lows, we lack nothing in Christ. We have a hope that goes beyond this world that cannot be shaken. And this is what makes Christianity so appealing. We have all that we need. We lack nothing because of the gospel. Christianity provides for us a meaning in life. The modern secular worldview has no hope outside of themselves. All that matters to them is the here and now. This life and this world is all that there is. And everything has a natural cause or a scientific explanation. And I understand there's even, there's even a science behind this topic of contentment and discontent regarding the neurotransmitters in our brain of dopamine which drives discontent and motivation and serotonin which drives satisfaction and contentment. But you have to understand there's a driving force behind it all. There's always a meaning behind the meaning. And as soon as you bet your life on a natural cause in the secular worldview, you have a hard time finding substantial meaning and purpose in your life. You can create your own meaning in life with no discovered objective meaning, and that's fine if you want to live off your own personal views and what you think gives you purpose. But how workable is that? How does a personal subjective view actually play out on purpose and meaning in life? Sure, go ahead and dwell on whatever it is you're living for. That might satisfy you temporarily, but ultimately, long-term, big picture, it's not sufficient. It's impractical. If you determine your own meaning and purpose in life, then you will always be in want. Christians believe that God made us for a relationship with him. But we turned away from him to live for ourselves, which is what we call sin. But God returned to earth and has broken in through Jesus Christ and has come to pay the debt that we have done. Our injustice, our sin, he has paid that debt himself. So that now when we believe in him, he can come into our lives and he can put his nature in us so that we not only can have a relationship with him now, but also, when we die, all of our deepest longings will be fulfilled. So let's consider these two options. The secular worldview, which says, if I work hard enough, I can create my own meaning and purpose in life. But ultimately, when all is said and done, everything is meaningless and fades away. Or Christianity, which says we can have purpose and meaning in life now and later, that never fades away, with all of our longings and desires fulfilled throughout all eternity. So if you're a Christian and you're struggling with want, then quite frankly, you're not thinking hard enough of what we have through the gospel of Jesus. So which of these two approaches in life is more rational? One says, don't think too much because ultimately everything is meaningless. And the other says you're not thinking enough because there's a meaning and purpose that cannot be taken away. So you see how it's Christianity that provides us with a true meaning in life and fulfills all of our needs. It's only when you believe in Jesus Christ as your shepherd that you can truly claim, I shall not want.
And as St. Augustine once said, to worship God is the deepest desire of humanity, for he has made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until it finds its rest and fulfillment in him. And that is what it means to live a life without lack. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for being the ultimate good shepherd who provides, protects, and cares for his sheep. Thank you for calling us out and drawing us to you as the sheep of your pasture. May our lives reflect the goodness and the grace of you as our shepherd. We thank you that we lack nothing because of the finished work of your son. May we live in accordance with that truth. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.